also address the lack of validated biomarkers. And that's the second big thing uh, that we've tried to discuss here at the podcast. And I think through the work that Mazen, Nureddin, Neymar Khoury, Rode Lumba, and also Alina L have been doing around imaging biomarkers, MR, uh, the field has uh, just evolved. And we are clearly, it feels like, uh, taking big steps forward. It's interesting you should mention that because shifting away from this episode to some of the other things that we're going to be replaying for people this week, on Saturday, we're going to be looking at three conversations, three little 15, 18 minute snippets from episodes that were extremely well downloaded. The biggest one, of course, was the one with you and Stephen summarizing what you heard from Scott Friedman and Lars Johansson at the Paris Nash. But one of the other two is specifically about that. It's what was the takeaway from ASLD 2021 on the issue of the need to improve biomarkers and diagnostics in general, but really uh, non-histopathological, um, both MRE and the liquid biomarkers. And yeah, I think that's been another major theme in the, in the field over the last two years, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you just revisit the last ILC, it's not just that we're in the position to actually define those diagnostic biomarkers, but we're starting to discuss prognostic biomarkers with health that has been had, uh, received approval by the FDA in certain populations, histology at baseline, or the whole data sets that we've discussed with the work that's been done by Hannes Hackström's uh, group or recently presented by Quentin Nancy with regards to outcomes in FIP4 or high categories, the differentiation between liver outcomes and cardiovascular outcomes. That feels like light years away from what we were thinking and knowing in 2020 because we're much more focused on, on outcomes, the role of surrogates, which patient population should be included in clinical trials. You know, And if I think back up to our conversations, we had a lot of these aspects were discussed here and in Surfing Nash. And that's what I value the podcast for. It's really state-of-the-art science that's important to the field that's being recapitulated here. Yeah, I agree. And, and frankly, it's a lot of fun. When I decided to do this week's episode, I didn't realize how much fun I was going to have listening to old episodes and saying, gee, people have really you know, changed tunes and thinking about moments and papers that did that and possibly ways that the podcast helped to shape it. The third thing we're going to do on Saturday morning, besides those two conversations, is we're going to pull a piece on Nail NIT. And I think we're going to wind up pulling it from the initial Nail NIT episode, which you were not on. It was Stephen and Mazen, and then Amy Articolo and Sen Sundaram from Turns and Rachel Zayas. We may well also do a piece on Sunday from Nail NIT that's about the piece that you were on where we talked about using the retrospective data. But I'd like you to comment for a minute on A, the value of the consortiums in general, and B, what you think makes Nail NIT a little different from the others. Yes, absolutely. I still remember that, Nash. I was in a different time zone, not being able to travel. I was still at the height of, or maybe towards the end of the COVID waves. And as such, I was in a different time zone. But I, I dialed in for the initial presentation, the meeting that uh, was chaired by Mezen Radden and the setup and reasoning for uh, Nail and Nati. And, and at that time, there were a lot of biomarker consortium already been running for years. Um, Nimble, Litmus, um, there's Goldmine that came out of UCSD and is led by Rohit Lumba. All of those are academic adventures, public, private partnerships, some funded through big European consortia, some mostly industry funded. And Nail NIT looked, or Mazen and Stephen looked at the, the landscape and said, well, you know, where's 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 the gaps in knowledge in NIT development and linkage to outcome? And I think one arena that's a little bit removed from the academic and clinical cohorts that have been enrolling according to strict inclusion, exclusion criteria, but not to the same extent as have been clinical trials are, of course, all the sponsors that have been collecting data independently of each other, but tremendous amounts. Think of the number of phase three trials that are ongoing now. And in some, if you just think of those five right now, there's over 10,000 patients just in the screen for clinical
clinical trials. And if you are thinking of the screen failure rates, which are 50% in most cases and even higher, um, there's a lot of patients that did not make it into the clinical trial, but there's baseline data linking the NITs to biopsies. That's where NAIL NIT closes the gap, extending the experience and knowledge the academic consortia have and taking a very sophisticated and very well-selected clinical trial cohort. Now, that's not the patients I do see in clinic every day, but it's the highest quality of data that you can get because it was collected with part of a regulatory trial. And the quality of the data collection, therefore, even exceeds what's been done in the academic consortia. And that's where the, where the gap to nail and IT addresses has been closed. Yeah, that's that's actually incredibly important, you know, because one of the surrogate endpoints is NASH resolution with no worsening of fibrosis and linking that to an outcome is, well, we just don't have that data, really. I mean, we know that if you resolve NASH vicariously, we should have improvement in fibrosis. And we know fibrosis should be linked to an outcome. We, we, we have the recent hepatology paper with uh, the Gilead data suggesting if you improve histopathology that you certainly have a much lower odds of progressing to an outcome. But it's a lot weaker for NASH resolution, for sure. So that's a good point, actually. A very good point. Mazen Nureddin. Another point I want to also mention is based on what Stephen just said, that he mentioned Donna and her role in patient advocacy and beyond the biopsy campaign, which I was privileged that I did part of it on radio with her. So I want to also acknowledge her and many other people that they are part of this as the foundation. So she, Naima Corey, they're very important. A lot of people are important. I mean, I'll name a few and I hope I will not miss a lot, miss others. But Joran Schattenberg and Naima Corey will be leading the retrospective analyses. Michael Charlton, Vlad Radzu, they kindly agreed to join us in the retrospective as well as the consortium uh, steering committee. We have other people, I'll name them quickly, like Rohit Lomba, who play a significant role, Mara Renella, Scott Friedman, Brent Tetri, Vincent Wong, Quentin Anstey, Juana Braldis, Amina Banzel, and Sophie Janine, who's the CMO of Summit. It's not just these people that you see on the screen. Uh, there's an army of people that in this very collaborative uh, effort that is starting around the world. Thanks, Moss. And, that, and to give the scope of this effort, I think is really helpful. I, I've got just one recollection that might be flawed. Help me. And then, Louise, I want to get to you. I think I recall was it Scott Friedman on his earlier episode with us talking about the idea that nobody has ever correlated NIS with outcomes, period. The way you got to the item of the NIS score was that they were things that people could agree on subjectively, but no one ever correlated it? I don't know if you, you can say nobody correlated it. It's probably the, did not come out in univariate and multivariate analyses overall. And what's coming out usually is, is fibrosis and meta-analyses as well as other analyses. And the recent New England Journal data, it's uh, showing clearly that the F3 and F4 people are in trouble. But many of us like think also the F2 is need, you need to start on them early so you don't prepare for your exam too late um, in the last two minutes of before getting into your exam. So I think it's in general the NASCAR is not coming out. Saying that, it was left as a main player because it's disease engine and the driver. 
that as Stephen said, it does lead to the fibrosis and there's indirect data linking Nash resolution to improvement of fibrosis and we know that happens. For instance, the JAMA Open Network paper from the Nash CRN first author is uh, David Kleiner. There's also another people about Elizabeth Brunt showing Nash resolution, uh, even improvement in Nash by two points actually. It's not as much as Nash resolution expectedly. Both of them eventually lead to fibrosis improvement. No one has done that because I think it did not come out. And uh, But the point is with those, and Ella Fibronor, by the way, showed the same thing. That data wasn't published, but the data from the phase 2b trial showed an improvement in the NAFLD activity score correlated strongly with improvement in fibrosis. And, you know, I've used this in illustrations and lectures before. I think what we're doing is we're trying from a histopathologic perspective. It's like we're we're in the middle of the night, we're up against a, the bark of a tree trunk and we're we're trying to feel the trunk in the middle of the night and determine what kind of tree it is and where it's located. Instead, we should zoom out to 30,000 feet and look to see that it's actually a forest with lots of different trees making up the forest. They don't all look the same, but they all make up the forest. And really what we want to know is is are our patients at risk or are they not? And can we impact them with therapy? And you can't do that by just getting way down in the weeds. You have to step back and look holistically. And I think that's what some of our blood-based markers and some of our imaging-based markers, and clearly when you put some of those two together, allows us to take a much broader look at what's really happening to the patient. Because remember, you know, while, while we're liver doctors and we're focused on liver disease as corporations, at least at least turns, I know Novo has a, a bigger metabolic engine to it. At the end of the day, fatty liver disease, it's, it's part of a metabolic dysregulation, part of energy overload. And where that energy gets stored preferentially is in, is in the liver. And in that setting, in the, in, in the right patient, these free fatty acids are very toxic and they lead to lipotoxicity and drive this inflammation, which drives fibrosis, which ultimately can, in the right patient, lead to cirrhosis and decompensating events and liver cancer even. So... <clears throat> You know, stepping back and saying our therapies don't just impact liver disease. I mean, we want to develop the ideal therapy for NASH, and that's, you know, probably combination therapy that gets at a whole lot more than just improving liver disease. That That's some of the goals of NAIL and IT. It's can we develop these non-invasive tools that really advance the field and allow us to get the right drugs for the right patient at the right time into their hands so that we can leave a big fat dent on the planet in the name of fatty liver. And let me also take the advantage of this and maybe invite the agnostic companies that did not get the chance to get an other consortium or started after to reach out to us and see if they want to be part of this and validate their biomarkers. I mean, we have a lot that will be included. We're going to have imaging, MRI-based, PDFF, MRE, CT. T1, transient elastography with the spleen probe, Velocor, and blood-based biomarkers will be huge as well, including ALF, OWL, genetics, proteomics, metabolomics, uh, you name it. And um, I'm sure I'll miss tons. Uh, we do have already uh, a place to store all these samples that the, in the belt right now in, in the Houston Research Institute that I will be sitting in all day and looking at the samples one by one going to the research and make sure they're maintained in the right temperature. That's my new job. So I invite anyone who wants to contribute to this. It's very exciting. It's what keeps us going every day is like, oh, we're going to help the patients and not stick them with a needle and tell them, sorry, you don't have a balloon cell, but also advance the field. And uh, I, I 
I'm personally really grateful to all the friends that jumped in in a second when we reached out to them from even from different consortiums. They're like, we're with you. We'll help you. So it can't get better. Louise has been patiently sitting, cogitating. And I know a lot of this is in wheelhouses that you care about. So uh, I'm going to go on mute and let you ask questions and do what you will for the next couple of minutes. Go ahead. Louise Campbell. It's just fascinating listening to it. It shows where we're moving to, whether the rest of medicine will follow us in that line, the more we get NITs, is to be seen, particularly post-pandemic. But I was very interested in Amy and the complete holistic valuing the patient and everything they provide. And obviously, I think that's vital that we utilise all of their samples, particularly the biopsy sample, as well as we can. And we've done that before. But Stephen touched on patient reported outcomes. It would be exciting for me to see what the patient reported outcomes are, whether or not we're going to be assessing them for which NIT motivates them more than others. Because there's a lot of unanswered questions when we take non-invasive technologies to bodies like NICE or different areas that say, oh, well, there's no information on behavioral change. Well, how can you prove it? If you've got all of these NITs together, are you looking to answer the questions that are posed regularly as the weaknesses of NITs in the data that you're collecting? Or is it purely the NIT measures themselves that you'll be reviewing? I guess you're alluding which NIT is going to be probably the most helpful. And uh, I guess we'll make it to the front line. I think uh, if I'm correct, uh, getting part of your statements. To me, the field is if you look at the therapeutics or the diagnostics, there should be a complete collaboration and coordination between the drug or the test, which is this is the only difference from type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes with the drugs is going to be the same story with NASH. We started with metformin, we added others, the PPRs, whatever, theazides, well, not theazides, PPRs, whatever, you, you name it. And then now we see combination of drugs, especially on those that are, they are hard to control. And usually patients have multiple drugs. In contrast to type 2 diabetes, um, you can argue, I mean, if A1C is the test to go for in type 2 diabetes. Of course, there's others that they use more in a more sophisticated way, but you can get away with A1C in the type 2 diabetes field. I don't think that will happen in the NASH field. So whoever is developing a test is like, my test is the test that's going to be used. I'm going to keep, you know, trying to to do it on my own. I don't think that should be the case. I think people should collaborate to see the combination of tests that will lead to improvement. Well, one, to stage the disease. Two, to assess longitudinal changes in response to treatment and three, to correlate with outcomes. I think with the combo, you can have a combo that can hit all three of them at the same time and we will get to use it. But this is a disease that is complicated. It has multi-pathways, including, you can argue each pathway by this itself. Like steatosis, inflammation, it's on its own fibrosis. And this is in a simple way. Each one of them has multiple interplays. So I think the NITs will be marrying each other here and a final uh, simplified uh, score that hopefully will be used across the different context of use because the context of use is, is it's a different talk by itself but hopefully we'll try to find something that will hit multiple contexts of use in this field We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Surfing the Nash.